This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Frank Reddy. Hi. You sound so excited to be here, Frank. No, that's our, our little contrast thing. You you come on all hot and bothered, and I'm just kind of really trot and say hello. Oh, have you been analyzing our comedic di- dynamic? Is that how this works? I've given it some thought. Okay. Well, uh, this is part two of episode number nine of Cinema Fix, focusing on the movie Immortals. So if you're looking for part one, you were listening to the wrong file. Go back and find part one. <coughs> this is the wrong episode. Uh, basically, if, if this is your first time listening, Cinema Fix is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster film. Each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a 10-minute spoiler-free discussion of that week's latest mainstream release. And part two, which you're listening to right now, is the much more in-depth spoiler-filled analysis when we really dive into what works and what doesn't work about a movie. Now, as mentioned, uh, today we are talking about Immortals. This is the new Sword and Sandals epic directed by Tarsim Singh. It's in 3D. Frank, in part one, uh, we concluded that you didn't really care for the film. I kind of liked it. Uh, But before we really dive into things and and talk about it, uh, here's a clip. Why do you cover your face? All are equal in Hyperion's midst. I myself am only a vessel for his demands, nothing more. And he asks me by name? Oh, indeed he does. And how does he know it? Theseus, there is little the king does not know. He knows that you have no father. And like him, you are cast aside by your very own people. Does he know of my rage? Does he know that I live only to see his blood at the end of my sword? Does he know he butchered my mother? Now that he's seen your face, he knows. Okay, Frank, in part one of our discussion, we talked about how the story of this film isn't all that great. However, I would like to bring to your attention, in defense of this film, a few story elements that I thought, even if they weren't developed very well, were at least interesting and decent ideas and something I wasn't expecting. Okay. Firstly... And again, I, I, I need to point out, I'm not an expert in Greek mythology, so maybe this is common in Greek mythology and I didn't know it. This is the first I'm hearing about this, that he's not an expert in Greek mythology. <laughs> I am both shocked and disillusioned. <laughs> well, Frida Pinto in this movie plays this virgin oracle uh, named Phaedra. And she she has the gift of prophecy, but she goes around with these three other quote-unquote, oracles, who aren't really oracles. They're just there to be decoys and protect her. Also, she's a virgin oracle, and if she has sex or is raped, that will 
ruin her gift of uh, prophecy and being able to see the future. I thought that was a really interesting idea. I think it's been done before. I can't remember where, but I think it's been done before. But I thought, okay, near the beginning of the film, there's this big kind of elaborate sequence involving this, this vision of Hyperion freeing the Titans, and Phaedra wakes up from this nightmare, and she and her oracles gather together, and, you know, just to talk about it. And I was like, okay, so we've got this this group of oracles, right? This is kind of like, are they, is this like the witches in Macbeth or something that are going to set everything in motion? And then it turns out that she's the only one that's really important. And I thought that was kind of interesting, the idea that she's so special that three other women would essentially dedicate their entire lives to just being around her to protect her so that she can keep having these visions of the future. I think you are stretching the definition of the term interesting beyond all reasonable bounds. <laughs> I thought I thought that was a decent idea. Now, she complains throughout the film that, oh, my, my gift of prophecy is actually a curse and I hate having these terrible visions. I think they could have done more with that. And I, I would agree. I think they could have done more with the idea that when she has sex, she loses that yeah. gift of prophecy. Because that to me was fascinating. That was like the only interesting part and they – of course, halfway through the movie, she has sex with him. And you think, oh, well, we're going to deal with the fallout of this. They're traveling with the monk. He's going to be pissed. Nothing ever happens with it. Right. And she just, she's just kind of like, oh, yes, I'm going to, to have sex with you just because I'm tired of this, of having my gift. And I was thinking to myself, wait, wait, wait. You, you're Really? That's it? I mean, if you've been sick of if this gift your whole life, then... Why didn't you just run out and have some random sex with some guy? She's waiting for the right person. Apparently. But, you know, that chemistry and that relationship between them is never... It's not there. ...really developed. No. In the 12 hours they knew each other, she decided, you know what? Right. I've been hanging on to this gift my whole life, but I can tell. I mean, it's just because she's can, she can tell that he's touched by the gods, which I thought, okay, you get it. You understand he's special, but I need a little bit more than that, you know? Well, I just – I think there should have been some fallout from it if it was right. such a big deal. And and also, you know, when we first meet Theseus, uh, this he, he's chatting with this old man played by John Hurt who's actually Zeus in disguise who's teasing him over like, you know, if only you put as much work into finding a woman as you did working. You know, and then his mother comes to talk about, oh, well, come on, you got to give me some grandkids. And Theseus as a character seems like he's not really interested in girls. He's That's just not – He's not there in his life. He's, he's not ready to settle down. So I needed more from both of these characters, you know, to draw them out towards each other, to, to really solidify why they're suddenly going to, to fall for each other. Yeah, and I would argue that the, the other downside to that is after they sleep together, which is like halfway through the movie, she becomes essentially useless for the rest of the thing. She, she has nothing else to do. Right. She does, and, and, you know, and it's interesting because they bring up early in the film that it's not necessarily that once she has sex, she won't have visions anymore. I believe they say that once she has sex, uh, her visions will be unreliable. I think it's essentially the same idea. Well, I, I don't think so because I think the idea that you know, you know, when we first meet her, she's having visions, and it's essentially basic. It's it's basically what she sees will happen. But if that suddenly isn't the case anymore, that brings up really interesting ideas related to well, can we change the future? 
Is this necessarily going to happen? And I guess the implication is because she slept with Theseus, her vision that he would ultimately join Hyperion with the bow was unreliable. Didn't she have that before she slept with Theseus? That's what I'm saying. I think she had that vision so before it, she slept with him. Shouldn't it have happened then by your logic? Yes, it should have. And they never did anything with that either. They right. never even came close to – that whole thing was a stupid waste of time. Like I definitely thought that having this this uh, virgin oracle was an interesting idea. They just didn't really do anything with it unfortunately. No, they did not. So technically they get no points for even having the interesting idea. Oh, I, I'll, I'll give them points for the idea. But I will acknowledge yeah. they didn't really do anything with it. The idea they did nothing with? Yeah. The idea that was just kind of like, oh, okay, we'll put that on paper. <laughs> Why not? I mean, I guess if it kills time until the next sword fight. I mean... <laughs> see, clearly, Frank, you didn't – I can tell you didn't see Clash of the Titans because, trust me, if compared to that film, I will take any hint of a decent idea I can find, okay? Now – Andrew brings the same desperation to his love life too. Oh, oh, too far. Stepping over the line Too far. There. I'm I... just waiting for my virgin oracle. Okay, the other – Interesting story element I want to bring up is Mickey Rourke's villain. Oh, my God. Hyperion. Here's what I think is interesting. He is, in effect, so evil. They bring up this idea when he's talking with this uh, defector from the army that he wants to not only take over the world, he wants to be, quote-unquote, immortal in the sense that he doesn't want any women that he's conquered to have children that are not his. He wants to basically rape all the women so that they bear his children, they look like him, and his bloodline will essentially just carry on throughout the generations and throughout the entire world. I thought that was really fascinating and a really twisted added element to what was essentially until in a stock character who just wants to take over the world. It was a rather twisted motive. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, you have these rumors about people like Genghis Khan, who supposedly, you know, had sex with so many women that a great deal of people in Asia are probably related to him uh, somewhat. I thought that was really interesting. And then you've got these really striking images of, for example, a man with his legs being pulled apart so that his testicles can be smashed with a sledgehammer, and he will never be able to father children since that would pose a biological threat to Hyperion. He said that he was doing it because the man was a traitor and he didn't want any more traitors to be spawned. Exactly. He doesn't want basically any... A weaker gene. Right. He only wants his genes to be spread. I think it's related to the fact that he lost all his wife and children to some kind of a disease so that the more children he has the less likely they can all be wiped out. Right. Again, there you go. I think that's an interesting character point. It is an interesting character point. I wish they'd played a little bit more with it instead of just having every scene being about proving what a badass he is. So you're saying you wanted more scenes of testicles being crushed. Not more scenes of testicles <laughs> being crushed. That hurt me as both a man and a moviegoer. But just more scenes where they kind of dealt with the whole – his motivation – because I thought that was, like, the one interesting character element there was. And I thought that they could have done more with it, maybe, instead of making him seem... He just came off then, from there, as just kind of, like, this purely evil guy. 
And I think with that motivation, they could have made him like a really interesting character who was just reacting out of like grief and rage. Mm -hmm. So it was a good motivation for him wanting to like destroy the gods. That was, I think, the one thing that I did like. But other than that. Let's talk about some of the visuals here, because you said you thought they were gaudy. I did think they were gaudy. Can you elaborate? I I could. I could. I don't know if I want to. Are but... you talking about just like, for example, the gods with their crazy headwear? and? No, I don't care about that. Uh, I thought that, okay, there's an example when he's talking to the old man, John Hurt, and he, he frames it so that there's like a tree twig. And at the very end of the twig splits off in two directions, so it looks kind of like a tuning fork. And the, because it's 3D, the tree twig is popping out at you. And there is no earthly reason for that shot other than that it was in 3D, and he probably thought it would look cool. I find it, I find it massively distracting. Um, I thought it detracted from the scene because you're, you're paying more attention to the tree twig than you are to what the characters are saying. And this is a scene where you're meeting Theseus in the old man for the first time. So in my mind, it's important that you get to know them. So that irked me, to be quite honest. I thought there were some cool camera moves. I just feel like, for the most part, it was about drawing attention to the camera work instead of using the camera work to tell the story. I thought that the camera work in the film was incredibly precise. And the art direction and the set design in this movie really blew me away. I mean, you've got these really striking images, for example, of this um, stone calf that's kind of like the idol and the symbol of Hyperion's army. You've got this one action scene in which Theseus is fighting a guy with a barbed wire kind of calf mask, which I thought was a really striking image. And they're in this round um, cavern and then there's this, uh, there's like a pool of water and these stairways that all meet in the middle. And Theseus at one point is underneath and there's like this, uh, at this well. And there's like this um, giant marble human head that's been sculpted. And I just thought it was really gorgeous and really incredibly conceived. And in terms of action scenes, when you've got these, um, you know, these big sword fights happening in slow motion, the trailers for this movie make it look like just another 300 where you know we're gonna slow everything down and you're just gonna see them slicing through each other and fake cg blood going everywhere and what makes immortals different and which i think makes it technically superior to something like 300 is that frequently what will happen in the way he's shot it is that our heroes like the gods for example will be moving at normal speed while everything around them is in slow motion at times. And it it was just really cool to me. Um, they use that effect every week on Smallville, a TV show <laughs> that is far better than this movie. Every week, you use the same effect, and it is super cool. But the way Tarson framed it with the camera, I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like it, just with the amount of sheen and the amount of limited blur. And, it's, and again... The, uh, the color palette he uses, for example, the final fight between the Titans and the gods, I thought was spectacular. It was like pure eye candy. You've got these, the, you've got this very, um, gray cavern, and then you've got these, um, kind of brownish silver Titans fighting these gods that are adorned in gold and these, uh, much shinier, um, 
tunics. Tunics, yes. And the contrast and the color palette of that scene was just visually incredible. And the way that he edits between shots as like he'll 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 show Zeus killing like three guys and he'll keep the camera peeled back so you can see it all in one shot and you can see the the limbs and the being dismembered and you can see all the the violence being inflicted and then he'll cut to another medium shot of the titans doing something else and he'll let you see that in all of in that full move and he doesn't he's not one of these directors that's going to be quick cutting to give the impression of intensity he's actually going to make the fight intense and just let it play out in front of you, which I really liked. And I thought the editing was really smooth, and I I just really loved that final action scene. It was okay. I mean, it was it was brutal. It was quick. There was lots of uh, stabbing, slashing, <laughs> decapitating. Um, I mean, I felt like you could take practically any shot from the film, and it would it was it would almost be like an old Caravaggio painting just with the lush colors and that final image of Zeus on top of the uh, cage of Titans getting ready to literally pull the mountain down on top of them, I just thought was really, really well shot, really striking imagery that just that, that, that I found very memorable. I mean, it, it is, but I mean, again, it, for me, it comes back to I didn't care about any of those characters, so for me, I didn't care who won the fight. It's kind of like if you're sitting at a really dull football game, I didn't care who won. I just wanted the clock to run out and the movie to be over at that point, you know, because you don't really have a stake in the God characters really aren't that well developed. And, uh, you know, you have no stake in what happens. I, I mean, they're a little developed in the sense that you get the impression that there's there's some infighting in the sense that Zeus doesn't want them to intervene, but eventually they do, and he has to kill one of his fellow gods. I think his son. Yeah, I think his son, though he does let his daughter Athena live. But you see, the fact that we have to say we think his son is a bad sign. I, I guess. I mean, on the other hand, if do we really need to know all of the gods individually? Well, yeah, if you want the moment where he kills him to be poignant it'd be nice to have some clarity on whether or not that's his son because that makes a significant amount of difference sure i guess i overall i just felt like the visuals were so precise that i found myself just mesmerized at times by the movie even though i couldn't have told you who, who the characters were i was just kind of enthralled by the whole experience and just kind of really wrapped up in it yeah, I guess I just that doesn't quite do it for me. Okay, like like for example, um, and and again, this is why I'm saying I I will totally acknowledge that the script, in many ways, is very weak, but I think that Tarsum as a director really brought something unique to this project. For example, the scene in which Theseus and Phaedra and the and the gang return to the the the, the pit where there's this ambush that's been laid for them. And they, they come across the big calf, the, the metal calf left behind by Hyperion, and realize that the other three quote-unquote oracles are inside, slowly roasting alive. That, to me, was terrifying. The idea that you've got these beautiful women slowly being roasted alive inside this calf, and they overturn it, and they open it up, and just the the way he frames it and the way he does the makeup, 
I thought was so chilling that I thought other directors would not have been able to pull off this scene. They either would have said, this is this is going too far, this is too horrific, or they would have shot it in a way that felt gratuitous and felt like torture porn, but he knows exactly how to frame it where it will have the, its maximum effect. I would disagree. I think that like if you look at the work of someone like Steven Spielberg, he moves the camera very, very well, I think, does great stuff with it, but he he creates moments with it. It's not about moving the camera. It's about creating... I think he gets a lot more per moment with camera than this guy rang out of that particular scene. I, I mean, there was nothing really all that special about that scene that struck me. Or take, for example, the scene in which uh, the giant Poseidon unleashes this giant tidal wave uh, upon everybody, and Theseus and Phaedra barely escape. And in the immediate aftermath of that scene there's this these really incredible images of just them waiting to shower yeah, that was because pretty cool. they're covered in this black oily grime from the sea and i thought other directors would not have shown that first of all and if they had shown it it wouldn't have been as visually stunning the way he depicted it and i thought that was a, that's again that's another unique that's, that's Tarsum's signature right there, is little moments like that that visually just stand out and make you go, oh, that's a really interesting, unique way to approach it. I mean, I thought it was a cool looking scene. I get what you're trying to say in terms of the visual beauty of it. It just, it, I mean, it just, that to me does not a movie make. And I, I get incredibly frustrated. It's like the debate over Avatar, whereas, it, I mean, if film's a visual medium, if the film has great visuals, does that mean it's a good movie? And my answer would be no. I think there's more to st- more. I mean, so I think that's a very important part of it. But I think there's a lot more that goes into crafting something worth watching. And I mean, I can appreciate that the scene was was good looking and framed well. But other than that, okay. I'm just saying. I think that as a filmmaker, Tarsim brought something to the proceedings and brought visual maturity and heft to a script that otherwise was pretty awful. I will admit. And I think that if you had had someone else tackle that script, it just would have been one of the worst movie-going experiences ever. Whereas at the very least, I was so wrapped up in the uh, visuals most of the time that even though in the back of my mind I was thinking, I don't really care about these people, I was still just kind of mesmerized and and wanted to see what would happen next. Just because I was kind of like, oh, well, I wonder what Tarsum's going to throw me in the next shot. I wonder what crazy geometrical set design he's going to show me. I wonder what striking image is going to pop out next, whether it's a man with a barbed wire calf head on his head or whether it's um, a a god literally pulling down an entire mountain. I was like, I just want to see what he's going to think of next. Yeah, I mean, I can can, uh, understand that. I can, uh, you know, appreciate that. You know, I'd be interested to see what he does next as a director. Um, you, you need to see The Fall. You really should see The Fall. He spent 10 years working on it, financed it himself, was a labor of love, went to dozens of real-life practical locations all around the world, and it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. Okay. You should check out The Fall. And that goes to anyone listening as well. Rent it on Netflix. Just find a copy of The Fall. You will not regret it. I promise. But is there anything else you want to say about Immortals? Uh, No. 
there's one minor complaint I will add on. That image you see in the trailers of the gods and titans fighting in heaven as the camera pulls back to reveal just dozens and dozens and dozens of supernatural gods fighting each other. I thought that was an awesome visual. Here it doesn't even get thrown in until the very end of the movie as like they're seeming to suggest, oh, if this movie does well at the box office, we'll have a sequel. Maybe. A war in heaven. And I was kind of like, oh, don't show me that. I want to see that movie. I will not be seeing that movie. <laughs> the way he framed it where um, you know, the first thing you see is like one god and one titan uh, fighting. And then the camera pulls back and you realize it's like they're walking but on air. And it keeps pulling back and you've got eventually so much was happening in the frame. It was just kind of like visual paradise and visual overload i was like oh that that's really cool Look at that guy over there and that guy over there and that fight going on over there i want to see that movie i do not okay all right well i think that will wrap it up for our discussion of immortals be sure to tune in next week when we will be discussing twilight breaking dawn part one. Oh yes finally a good story another movie about supernatural beings and some of whom have lived a very long time i don't know what it is about what we've what we what we've seen lately i mean in time immortals twilight what is our new cultural obsession with living forever i don't know i couldn't tell you you wanted to just end it you wanted to end your life not end my life but perhaps reconsider my regal club card membership <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at www.filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. Please write us a review. It'll really help get the word out about the show. If you like this episode, feel free to tip us through the donation button on the website. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. You have no idea. It really helps us keep things running. Frank, where can people find you online? They can't. You're just don't, you don't exist. I'm a ghost. All right. Well, people can find me at www.thecoolishaveffect.com and on Twitter at twitter.com slash writer Andrew. If you follow me, be sure to message me and uh, let me know you're a listener and I will follow you back. You will. All right. I'm Andrew Johnson. Frank Reddy. And have fun this week in Arizona. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!